0: Welcome to the Bibliography Podcast, the place for cutting-edge discussions and conversations about ancient inscriptions and their use in interpreting the Bible. Your host, Clint Burnett, is a New Testament scholar, author, and historian who holds a PhD in Biblical Studies from Boston College and currently serves as a lecturer in New Testament at Johnson University in Knoxville, Tennessee. The early Christian claim that Jesus was raised from the dead is the fundamental linchpin for what we know as Christianity. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Christianity would not exist, and Jesus would be just another false messiah who was executed by Rome. Since the establishment of Christianity, some Christians have looked for concrete proof of Jesus' resurrection. For some of the earliest Christians, the empty tomb served as proof that God had indeed raised Jesus from the dead. According to the author of the Gospel of Matthew, the Jewish authorities asked Pilate for soldiers to guard Jesus' tomb. On the first day of the week, an angel descends from heaven, rolls away that stone that was at the opening of Jesus' tomb, and by implication, Jesus then steps out from the tomb, and in the midst of all of this, the soldiers that the Jewish authorities had asked for fled in terror. The author of Matthew says that some of the soldiers came and reported what happened to those Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. These, in turn, paid the soldiers hush money and told them to tell anyone who inquired that Jesus' disciples came by night and stole Jesus' body while the soldiers were sleeping. The author of the Gospel of Matthew then provides an editorial aside saying that this explanation For Jesus' empty tomb was circulating among non-Christian Jews of his day, which would be around A.D. 80 to A.D. 90. Now, if we fast forward almost 2,000 years to the 20th and 21st centuries, there are some people, particularly a few New Testament scholars and Christian apologists, who claim to have concrete proof of Jesus' empty tomb and thereby indirect evidence for Jesus's resurrection. This proof is in the form of an inscription, which is also known as an epigraph. And basically what that consists of is any message from the ancient world written, scratched, drawn on some kind of durable material. Now, the most common material is some type of stone. Marble and limestone are the most popular but inscriptions and epigraphs are on walls, their own pottery, their own bones, their own lead tablets, in short they're on anything on which someone could compose a message. Now if you'd like to learn more about inscriptions, you can see my forthcoming book, Studying the New Testament Through Inscriptions and Introduction, which will soon be published by Hendrickson Publishers. The supposed Inscriptional proof for Jesus' empty tomb is an epigraph known as the Nazareth inscription after the location from which it was acquired. In 1934, New Testament scholar Leon Hermann proposed the Emperor Tiberius, who reigned from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37 and under whose rule Jesus was crucified, heard from Pilate rumors about Jesus' resurrection. In response, he issued the Nazareth inscription and set it up in Jesus' hometown to quell such rumors. Later, the popular Christian apologist and author of The Case for Christ, Josh McDowell, restated a similar interpretation of the Nazareth inscription. McDowell argues that the epigraph dates to the reign of the Emperor Claudius, so AD 41 to 54. He reconstructs the following scenario. The governor of the Roman province of Judea or Syria wrote a letter to Claudius the emperor asking, hey, I've got a lot of Christians here. What do I do about them? Claudius then sent a detective team out to figure out what to do. He discovered that Christianity began when the disciples of Jesus had supposedly stolen Jesus' body from the tomb. The emperor then issued the Nazareth inscription and had it posted in Jesus' hometown. The question I'll probe in this podcast is, what relationship, if any, exists between the Nazareth inscription and Jesus' empty tomb? In the process, I'll talk about the Nazareth inscription itself, the circumstances surrounding its discovery, its date and provenance, which means the place from which it came, and some critical issues that the text itself raises. The Nazareth inscription was unknown to the world until 1930, when the great French epigrapher Franz Cumont published it for the first time. The epigraph had long belonged to a German collector of antiquities and a one time curator of the Louvre in Paris. This guy had so many antiquities he had about thirty five hundred of them. His name was Wilhelm Fruner. Now, when Fruner died in 1925, he bequeathed some of his collection, which included the Nazareth inscription, to the Cabinet of Medallions in Paris. The epigraph, however, lay unnoticed by anyone for five whole years until someone brought it to Comon's attention. The only note that Fruner had left about the inscription in his files was that it was quote, sent From Nazareth in 1878. Now, in a recent article that's really fantastic, by the way, in the Los Angeles Review of Books, classicist and professor of history at the University of Oklahoma, Kyle Harper, makes the probable proposal that Fruner acquired the inscription from a Polish Lithuanian noble named Count Mikhail Tiskewicz who himself was also a collector of Greek and Roman antiquities, and that Fruner probably acquired this during the World's Fair of 1878, which was in Paris. Now, the inscription itself is only 22 lines long, which is not huge. There are inscriptions from Greco-Roman antiquity that are hundreds and hundreds of lines long. The inscription itself is about 60 centimeters high, 28 centimeters high, wide, six centimeters thick. Now, for those of you who, like me, grew up in the States and are metrically challenged, this equals about two foot high, about a foot wide, and about two and a half inches thick. So, it means that the inscription isn't very large. The material on which the text is engraved is marble. Now, for a picture of the inscription, you can go to the Bibliopigraphy website, B-I-B-L-E-P-I-G-R-A-P-H-Y dot com. And you can see on the inscriptions tab a picture of the Nazareth inscription. That the epigraph is on marble is important and has really gone underappreciated by many scholars. The reason is that marble is not indigenous to Palestine, which is roughly equivalent to modern-day Israel. So this means that the material on which the Nazareth inscription is inscribed had to be imported to the region. Now this is something that's usually reserved for official, public, and very important inscriptions. To give you an example of such an inscription, there's a famous inscription from the Jerusalem temple complex, and it's warning non-Jews not to pass by a particular point. And if they do, they're going to be killed. They're going to forfeit their own lives. Now, archaeologists have found two of these inscriptions, one of which is complete, the other is partial. But the material on which the inscription is engraved is, guess what? Marble. On the other hand, there's another really famous inscription that's from Jerusalem that predates the destruction of the temple. So this is A.D. 70 is when the Romans destroyed the second temple. This inscription is called the Theodotus Inscription, and it's the only inscriptional proof of a pre-AD 70 synagogue in Jerusalem. And so it's more of a private inscription, private in the sense it wasn't set up by the government in Jerusalem. Now, that inscription is not engraved on marble but on limestone. Now, for pictures, Greek texts, and my translation of the Jerusalem Temple Warning inscription and the Theodotus inscription, you can go to the Inscriptions tab on the menu of the Bibliopigraphy website to take a look at those. Because those two inscriptions are important for what we're about to talk about, the dating of the Nazareth inscription. The only way we can date the Nazareth inscription is through the inexact science of paleography, which is the dating of inscriptions by the letter forms. Now, this isn't as difficult and fanciful as it may seem initially. Letter forms, they change over time, and if you have enough parallel inscriptions from a region whose dates are actually known, either by being discovered in a scientific archaeological investigation or the inscription itself containing a date, you can compare the letter forms of those inscriptions whose dates are known in a particular region to those that are unknown, and you can come to an approximate date. It would kind of be similar for English and German speakers who are looking at older publications that are written in old English or Frachter scripts, and you can get sort of an approximate date of when the books would have been written because of those older scripts. Now, when the Nazareth inscription is compared to known first century AD inscriptions that come from ancient Palestine, which basically boils down to the two that I just mentioned the warning inscription from the temple and the Theodotus inscription Kyle Harper points out that the letter forms are, quote, a dead on match, end quote. Even if you're not an epigrapher, that is, a specialist who studies inscriptions, You can go to the inscriptions tab on the menu of the Bibliopigraphy website and you can see the similarities between the letter forms for yourself. The result of this match in letter forms is that epigraphers have dated the Nazareth inscription broadly to a 100-year window. That's roughly 50 B.C. to A.D. 50, give or take a decade on the back end. Now, given that the inscription is a decree of Caesar, It cannot date before the time in which a Caesar controlled the region, hence the date of around 50 B.C., which is sort of the approximate date of when Julius Caesar defeats Pompey and takes control of the larger Greek East, which included ancient Palestine. Now, this occurred around 48 B.C. There are a handful of scholars who have questioned the authenticity of the Nazareth inscription, basically calling it a fake saying that it's not real, it's a forgery. But in the words of another great French epigrapher, maybe the greatest of all time, I like to think of him as the GOAT, Louis Robert. He says, anyone who says that this inscription is a forgery doesn't know Greek epigraphy and is only highlighting his ignorance. Now, most scholars agree that the Nazareth inscription is probably a Greek translation, and it's not a good one. Of a Latin text. The French epigrapher who published the inscription, Cumon, concludes that the Greek translation is wooden, it's word for word, it's awkward, and it's barely understandable in some places. As I read to you the Nazareth inscription in just a moment, you'll be able to understand why Cumon said what he said. Now the original Latin text is probably what is known as a rescript which is basically an official response of a Roman emperor to a question posed by a local Roman governmental official, although there are scholars who debate this identification and want to argue about it. Provided, though, that the Nazareth inscription is a rescript, Cumon proposes that it probably is a response to a question from a procurator, which is basically a provincial governor, ...of either the province of Syria or Judea... ...about a specific situation that occurred within the province in question. So, Kumon reconstructs the background of the Nazareth inscription as follows. There's a situation that occurs within the province of Syria or Judea. The procurator then writes a letter to the Roman emperor to ask... ...how do I deal with this situation? Now, this was very common in the Roman Empire... And if you have time on your hands and you want to go to Pliny the Younger, he was a Roman governor of Bithynia in the early 2nd century AD, and he wrote a lot of letters to the emperor Trajan about a lot of things. It seems any question that popped into his mind, he drafted a letter and sent it off to the emperor, the most famous of which is, what do I do with Christians in my province? But that's another story for another day. Back to the Nazareth Inscription. And so the procurator of Syria or Judea writes a letter to the emperor asking how to deal with this situation. The emperor then responds in Latin. His text is then translated into Greek and a portion of that text is then engraved on the marble block containing what is known as a Nazareth inscription. Now most scholars agree with this broad outline, although they quibble about the details of the Nazareth inscription, such as the legal framework of the inscription, whether or not it's one text or two texts, and the overall nature of the document. Given that my purpose in this podcast is just to ask what relationship, if any, does the text have with Jesus' empty tomb, these arguments need not detain us. I will now quote the Nazareth inscription in full, and if you go to the Inscriptions tab on the menu of the Bibliopigraphy website, you can find the full Greek text in my translation of it. Quote, Decree of Caesar. It pleases me that graves and tombs, whoever made them for the sacred rites of their ancestors or children or household members, that these should remain undisturbed for forever. If, however, anyone proves that a certain person has destroyed them or in any other manner has exhumed those interred or with malicious intent, has transferred to other places for the purpose of harming those interred, or has transferred tombstones or stones, I myself command that just as if the matter concerned the sacred rights of the gods, a tribunal must be made against such a person for the offense of the sacred rights of humans, for it will be much more necessary to honor those interred. In general, Let it not be allowed for anyone to transfer those interred. If, however, anyone does not comply with my command, then I myself wish that this one be condemned to death on the charge of tomb violation." For my purpose, the Nazareth inscription raises two issues. The first being, who is the emperor? His name the inscription is simply Caesar. And second, what is the situation to which he is responding? As I noted earlier, the epigraph dates broadly from 50 B.C. to A.D. 50. Now, some historians and New Testament scholars have attempted to be more precise in this 100-year window. Cumont was convinced that the Nazareth inscription dates to Augustus' reign, so 31 B.C. to A.D. 14. But that a date during Tiberius' reign, A.D. 14 to 37, was also possible. Now, provided that the text dates to Tiberius' reign, Cumont entertains the possibility that it relates directly to Jesus' resurrection and to the empty tomb, the passage from Matthew's Gospel that opened my podcast. He proposes that Pilate may have asked Tiberius what to do about the report of Jesus' resurrection and the empty tomb. The Nazareth inscription is Tiberius's response and the reason that it was set up in Nazareth was it was Jesus' hometown. Now, other scholars have proposed a similar reconstruction, but dated the epigraph to the reign of Claudius, who reigned from AD 14 to 54. It's clear that there was unrest between Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, and between Jews both Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, and Gentiles in the Roman Empire during Claudius's reign. We have a copy of a letter that the emperor wrote to the Jews of Alexandria in AD 41 to quell some civil unrest and violence that had occurred between the Greek and the Jewish inhabitants of the city. We also have ancient historians who attest that some riots occurred among Jews living in Rome, rioting over Christus, Which many scholars believe is writing about Christ, and that the result of these riots was that Claudius expelled most of the Jews from Rome in A.D. 49. Now, this is why we have Priscilla and Aquila meeting Paul in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, too. Now, given this information, the great Italian historian Arnaldo. Momigliano, argues in his very influential biography of the Emperor Claudius that was published in two publications, two editions, he says, quote, "...if we discover in the very home of Jesus an edict threatening violators of tombs with a penalty of unusual harshness, it is not mere fancy but reasonable conjecture to conclude and connect it with the story which must have been current about the resurrection of Christ." and was subsequently recorded by the evangelists, namely that the disciples had broken into the tomb and carried off the body, end quote. Then, Momigliano connects this inscription to the above-civil unrest involving Jews that we talked about a moment ago, and then he concludes, quote, Our conjecture, then, will be that Claudius made inquiries about this new sect, learned the anti-Christian version of the story of Jesus' resurrection, and was thereby induced to have this edict set up in Nazareth and throughout Galilee, threatening with heavy and extraordinary penalties all persons who by violating tombs had already started or might in the future start seditious movements." Finally, in a more recent publication, it has been argued that the Emperor Nero, who reigned from AD 54 to 68, actually composed the Nazareth inscription himself which explains why Cumont and others conclude that it is a translation from Latin into Greek. These scholars conclude that Nero actually composed it in light of the persecutions of Christians in the city of Rome that happened in the early 60s. Now, there are problems with each of these reconstructions. After entertaining the possibility of the Nazareth inscription's connection to Jesus' tomb, Kumon points out that there are problems with his proposal. He even calls his hypothesis weak because it cannot provide an answer for why Pilate does not charge the followers of Jesus with the crime of stealing Jesus' body. There are other problems with Kumon's proposal, however. If the Nazareth inscription was set up in Nazareth, then it cannot date to Augustus' or Tiberius's reigns, as Cumon argues. Rome did not control directly the Galilee until the reign of Claudius in AD 44. It's true that the Roman Empire controlled the area in which the Galilee is, But until A.D. 44, it was governed by a king who was a client of Rome, and so there wasn't direct Roman control of the area. So this means that an emperor is not going to step on the toes of one of his client kings by setting up a decree in his territory. So it cannot have been set up in Nazareth until A.D. 44. The result is that Cumon's proposal about the provenance of the epigraph has to be set aside. Now, Momigliano's interpretation of the Nazareth inscription fits with a time when Rome controlled directly the Galilee. It has no historical basis whatsoever. Even the erudite and very conservative New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce concludes of the reconstruction of Momigliano, quote, there are too many uncertainties about the inscription to justify more than a tentative consideration of the possibility that it might have some bearing on the spread of Christianity in Claudius's reign, end quote. Momigli Anno acknowledges as much. In the second edition of his biography on Claudius, he goes so far as to lament ever having made this proposal in the first place. He says, quote, There was never any good reason to do so, and the inferences some scholars have drawn from this attribution Make me even keener to distance myself from it. And finally, the notion that the Emperor Nero himself composed the text rests on the presumption that the Nazareth inscription relates directly to earliest Christianity and directly to Jesus' empty tomb, which is not clear at all. And as the historian De Zeloita notes of the content of the Nazareth inscription, it seems a curious way of attacking belief in the resurrection. To threaten severe punishment on future resurrections. One of the biggest problems with the above reconstructions is that it's unclear if there were Christians in Nazareth during the mid first century AD. The only thing that the documents of the New Testament say about Nazareth is that it was Jesus' hometown. And the only time that Nazareth is mentioned in Acts of the Apostles, which is our only canonical theological history of the earliest church in the New Testament, is in the same way. According to the author of Acts, Luke, Peter tells Cornelius, who's the first Gentile convert to Christianity, that Jesus simply came from Nazareth. As a matter of fact, Luke and his gospel testifies that the people of Nazareth refused to believe in Jesus during his ministry and even tried to kill him. So it is true that according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus told his disciples that he would appear in the Galilee after his resurrection. And Matthew records that Jesus did appear in the Galilee after his resurrection. It is not clear, though, that the Galilee meant Nazareth. And given that Jerusalem becomes the base of operations of earliest Christianity, a direct connection among the Nazareth inscription, Jesus' empty tomb, and earliest Christianity cannot be established. Perhaps then the Nazareth inscription provides an interpretive backdrop, if you wish, for the reference to the disciples removing the body of Jesus in Matthew, as some scholars claim. After dismissing the connection between the Nazareth inscription and the resurrection of Jesus, the great New Testament scholar Father Raymond Brown notes, quote, Yet the inscription does fill in the background of the guard at the tomb story. On the one hand, it shows that tomb violation was very serious and that a Roman governor might have committed soldiers when there was a reason to anticipate the theft of the body of one whose death had public notoriety. On the other hand, common knowledge that those who stole a body would be seriously punished by the Romans might make readers realize the ridiculousness of the Jewish claim that disciples who fled when Jesus was arrested had now gained the courage to steal Jesus' body. Quote. I love Father Raymond Brown, but I am unconvinced. To be honest, I'm unconvinced that the Nazareth inscription should even be called such. I doubt that the inscription comes from Nazareth. The French epigrapher Louis Robert actually published all the inscriptions from Fruner's collection, including republishing the Nazareth inscription. He points out that there's no hint that the text actually came from Nazareth. As I noted above, The note that Fruner attached an inscription was simply that it was sent from Nazareth. Robert points out that there are other provenances that Fruner provides for his inscriptions, and all of them are uncertain, vague, or basically false. Therefore, it seems probable to me that the inscription did not come from Nazareth, and several scholars have concluded likewise, and they've proposed other locations like one of the cities of the Decapolis, this would be in modern-day Jordan, or it came from Samaria, or Sepphoris, also called Zapori, mainly cities in which we know there were large pagan populations. In support of this proposal, epigraphers have long noted the problem of what's called wandering stones, which are basically inscriptions that have been moved from their original locations, Now, this is a common occurrence, and it especially was so during the antiquities trade of the 19th and early 20th century. Just to give you one example, between 1913 and 1916, the German epigrapher, Johannes Kirchner, edited a volume of inscriptions that were found in Athens and its surrounding territory. Now, one of these texts is a decree honoring King Attalus I of Pergamum. Now, Pergamum is a city in modern-day Turkey. In 1971, the historian Robert Allen re-examined that inscription, and he proved that it did not originate from Athens. He looked at the content of the inscription, and he looked at the material on which the inscription was engraved, and he demonstrated that the inscription actually came from a place that was 43 kilometers, or, for those like me, who are metrically impaired, 27 miles off the Athenian coast from the island of Aegina. Now, the listener should remember the size of the Nazareth inscription. It's only about two foot high, it's only about a foot wide, and two and a half inches thick. So it's not very large, and it's something that could be moved without a lot of difficulty. Now, the cities of the Decapolis are only 60 kilometers or 37 miles away from Nazareth. Sepphoris, or Zipporah, is only 14 kilometers or 9 miles away. And Samaria is only 100 kilometers or 62 miles away. So I don't think it's either improbable nor impossible that the inscription wandered to Nazareth from one of these locations. The reason why I consider this probable is the content of the Nazareth inscription. So we're getting to the second thing that I wanted to look at. The text seems to me to be unrelated to anything associated with earliest Christianity or what we call Second Temple Judaism. The opening words of the epigraph say, quote, "...it pleases me that graves and tombs whoever made them for the sacred rites of their ancestors or children or household members, that those should remain undisturbed for forever." End quote. That opening line presumes that tombs have to remain inviolate because of cultic activities that occur at them. We do not know of a single reference to Jews or earliest Christians performing cultic rituals at anyone's tomb, not even the tomb of Jesus. In addition, the Nazareth inscription forbids a widely attested practice of Second Temple Jews in ancient Palestine, the use of ossuaries. Now, ossuary is basically a bone box. Beginning in the first century B.C. and continuing mostly until A.D. 70, but some continue on a little bit afterwards, Second Temple Jews in Jerusalem practice the burying of their deceased ancestors in tombs that are mostly cut into rock. Now, they waited until the bodies of their loved ones decomposed. and Then they went in, they collected their bones from the tomb and placed them in an ossuary, literally a bone box. Now, the Nazareth inscription forbids anyone from exhuming those interred in tombs with malicious intent and moving them. This is not necessarily a ban on ossuaries, as many scholars have pointed out, because it talks about the malicious intent aspect of it. So if you remove somebody and you don't have malicious intent, then you're not breaking the law. But the final words of the epigraph can be interpreted, and I argue should be interpreted as an all-out ban on ossuaries on removing anyone from a tomb. It says, quote, in general, let it not be allowed for anyone to transfer those interred. If, however, anyone does not comply with my command, then I myself wish that this one be condemned to death on the charge of tomb violation. End quote. The Nazareth inscription clearly condemns to death anyone who removes a body from a tomb. Now, there's no way that a Roman emperor and his Roman governor would have so blatantly trampled on the customs and rights of their Jewish subjects. The general guiding principle of governance in the Roman Empire, and especially in the early part of the Roman Empire, to which our Nazareth inscription dates, was to allow subjected peoples to live by their own customs and religious traditions unless those directly conflicted with Roman law or the subjects refused to pay their taxes." So as long as the money kept coming in, and as long as people accepted Roman rule, everything was kapasthetic. We know of no Roman law punishing a tomb violator with death, like what we have in the Nazareth inscription, until the end of the 2nd century AD. It is highly improbable that an emperor would invent such a law for the purpose of enforcing that law that conflicted. With the practices and customs of his subjects. The best explanation for the Nazareth inscription is that it reflects a local situation in which a predominantly pagan city in the southern Levant had a custom of prescribing the death penalty for tomb violation. The situation that warranted an imperial response must have been large enough, or it must have been ongoing, to cause a governor to write a letter that would take at least a month to get to Rome, and then at least 20 days to get from the emperor back to him. Although some scholars and historians have put forth other suggestions for historical context about the Nazareth inscription, such as the defilement of the Jerusalem temple complex by the Samaritans in the Passover of AD 8, they decided to throw some dead bodies in the temple complex to get at the Jewish people who were worshiping God during Passover. There are problems with these reconstructions, and and I just remain unconvinced. I propose that the situation to which the Nazareth inscription refers is simply one that's lost to history. We don't know what the situation was. In his fantastic article about the Nazareth inscription, Cal Harper concludes that the reason. That scholars have been so interested in it is that, quote, it would be the most ancient surviving artifact in any sense of the Christian faith, end quote. I concur with Harper's assessment for why historians and New Testament scholars have gravitated towards this epigraph. However, for the reasons that I have put forth in this podcast, I don't think the Nazareth inscription is from Nazareth nor do I think it has anything to do with earliest Christianity, nor does it have anything to do with Jesus' empty tomb. Rather, the epigraph is evidence for pagan religious practices of a local community in the Southern Levant and the violation of them by certain nefarious individuals. For this reason, the Nazareth inscription is not proof of Jesus' empty tomb. And for now, Belief in that empty tomb and in Jesus' resurrection still remains something that the Apostle Paul, one of the first Christians, would call, quote, walking by faith and not by sight, end quote. I'm Clint Burnett, and thank you for listening to the Bibliopigraphy Podcast. You've been listening to the Bibliopigraphy Podcast with Clint Burnett. For more information on the podcast, visit our website, bibliopigraphy.com, And follow us on Twitter, at Bibblepigraphy. For show notes, images, and links, visit bibblepigraphy.com slash inscriptions. If you enjoyed this podcast, then rank us on iTunes and donate at bibblepigraphy.com slash donate to help this podcast continue.